Well, I couldn't have asked for a better setup than what Randy just did. It's remarkable how the Lord organizes things like that. I was telling uh, Dave that uh, the practice that we are performing this morning is an old Puritan process. The men would show up for church on Sundays, and on some Sundays, one of the elders would stand up and say, Brother John, Brother Bill, Brother Dave, the text is so-and-so. You have ten minutes. Come and speak. Uh, Live with the fear of preparation in your heart, right? Amen. Uh, Do you love your Bible? I will take questions and responses during this. Do you love your Bible? When was the last time you kissed it? That's correct. Okay. It says that this in Psalm 19, it says that this book is sweeter than honey from a honeycomb. Thy word. That's right. I've hidden it in my heart. I love my Bible. Why? Because it's God's. Revelation of himself to me. It's the only thing in this life that's dependable. I'm not. It's the only thing in this life that is true. I'm not. It is the only thing in this life that reveals to me my future. I would have made a different future for myself and been a miserable Jose the entire time I was going about it. I had my plans. How many of you had plans that got altered? Mm-hmm. I was going to be discharged from the military and become a history teacher. I was going to go back to school, finish my degree in history, and become a history teacher. Well, he answered that prayer, but I'm not teaching the kind of history that I thought I was going to teach. I'm teaching the history of God. Look with me to 1 John chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 28 and read through chapter 3 and verse 3. Uh, Paragraph headings are not inspired. But uh, numbers in Scripture are not inspired. And so the context of what we want to read is chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 3. John writes and says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now you are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Can I get an amen at that point? I don't like what I am now to you. One of the great joys of New Jerusalem is I'm going to be able to go to communion and not have to confess a sin. I'll be like him. Perfect. I think that that's honestly one of the reasons he's going to serve us communion one last time after the rapture. So that we can go with it, so that we don't have to focus on ourselves first, but focus towards him. Now let me continue. That was free. When he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. Now, here's the key point. Here's what John is trying to do with verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The Bible is a complex book, but it's not a complicated book. 
It's complex because of the one who wrote it. God is complex, but he's not complicated. The Bible is thorough. The Bible is complete. The Bible is adequate because he wrote it. He didn't leave anything out of it that was necessary for it. If you want to give it an analogy, it's an instruction booklet on how we are to live. And he does that by showing us himself. Not by giving us some functionality about our own individuality, but he shows us himself and says, as I am holy, so be ye. What? Does he ever give you anything that frustrates you? No. The frustration comes because we tend to want to hinder or bring up short what he wants to give us to do. On September 5th, 1952, in Peoria, Illinois, God granted me repentance unto salvation. Without knowing why, but from that moment forward, there was in me this great anticipation of what would come at the end of what I saw as a life that lay out ahead of me. I was nine years old. I, I, I had no idea of death or things like that, but there was born in me that day something that hadn't been there that day, and it was a hope for what was to come, what lay out in the future. As I've gotten older, I've seen more and more and more of how God has opened uh, this, this life that he has invested in me and seen things that he has done. And through the entire process, I now understand what John the baptizer meant when he said that I must decrease that he might increase. It's been a life of diminution, if you would. But it has been a life of expectation as I've learned more out of this book about what awaits, the, what there is in the future. And it's not simply looking into the vast uh, 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 pie-in-the-sky kind of thought process that, well, we'll get there in the end. It's been a growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that moment by moment, through the opening of His Word by the Holy Spirit in my heart, I've gained a greater understanding of who He is and who I am. And it has made this life more and more hopeful each day. What John is saying in verse 3 is, literally, if you're saved, there's hope for you. And because that hope is there, you're going to live a certain way. Does that make sense to everybody? Without that hope, you simply stumble around like a pinball in the great machine of life and hope that you score a high enough number of points to get where you want to go at the end. This Bible is not a code book. It's not a secret code book, which is only given to understand by a, by a group of, uh, of trained individuals that know the secret codes to it. That's cultish. That's almost Roman Catholic, that it's only allowed to a certain few to understand this book. The book was written to shepherds, to fishermen, to slaves, to farmers. And when the letter to Paul to the Thessalonians was opened up in that church in Thessalonica and it was read, they understood what Paul was saying. Peter did write, though, of Paul that there were some things that he said that were difficult to understand but not impossible. So this is not a secret code book. It's given to us so that we might understand it and live with this hope in us. Do you all understand that? We live, we awake each morning with a hope resident in us that's been born there at our salvation. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
And let me explain to you who can understand this. Paul does it rather well in the entirety of the chapter. He writes, And when I come, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I hope you grasp that. We have a lot of wise people, hypothetically wise, that live in our society around us today. We're probably the most educated society that's ever lived. But with the accumulation of that human wisdom, there has fallen short, and there is a great paucity of divine wisdom that is resident in our society. Men have grown to the point almost of Genesis 6 once again, when every man did what he thought was right in his own mind. They rejected God. They rejected the reality of the simplicity of this book, and they have instead turned to their own wisdom. And you know what God did when it reached that point last time, don't you? He flooded the entire world and killed everybody save eight people. By the way, eight is the number of new beginnings when you read it in Scripture. Now, jump down to verse uh, 14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually apprised or discerned. But he who is spiritual appraises all things or judges all things, yet he himself is judged by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Did you know that John Bunyan spent 16 years in Bedford Jail in England, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, because he refused to read prayers from the Book of Common Prayers. Instead, he prayed as if he were speaking to God. Can you imagine that? Church systems that devise all of these veils, if you will, all of these curtains between God and man. They told him, if you'll stop doing that, we'll let you out of jail. He says, I can't. I have to do that. This is a book of absolute truths that are knowable with diligence. Application of yourself to this book, salvation, the Holy Spirit's opening. The Holy Spirit wrote it, didn't he? Give me a yes. Okay, so the author knows his intent. Uh, I've often heard people, though, say that God gave me this message. I, I've been preaching 34, 35 years. God's never given me a message. It's come out of his word at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, but not any of that. I wish sometimes it would be easy if he gave us words, right? If he gave us messages. Beloved. Is God double-minded? Every time in Scripture you read of something being double, it's always a negative. When it's single, it's always a positive. God doesn't have two interpretations of his truth. He has one mind, he has one truth, and he's not divided. He doesn't have plan A or he doesn't have plan B. We need to understand what Scripture says on a given item. Therefore, we can be dogmatic, if you would, on truth. We can arrive at God's truth, know it is God's truth. I can't, the people that I work for, we deal with Christian publishers in this town. Uh, people that edit books and distribute books. Uh, the name is not relevant, but I have gone into their offices, and uh, people knowing what I do as a vocation will ask me what I think on a certain section of Scripture. I will tell them, and they'll say, well, that's your opinion. I said, no, it's what Scripture says. Well, that's your opinion. I don't have an opinion. I have God's word on something, right? 
Can I be dogmatic like that? The older I've gotten, the more dogmatic I've gotten, right? <laughs> I'm allowed that. One of the advantages of getting older is that you learn that the only opinion that matters is what God says on the matter. And it is my endeavor to dig into it and find it. So what appears to be bluntness on the part of John as he speaks to these people about saying that a believer will live a holy life, if you have this hope in you, you will purify yourself, is not uh, anything other than what God's truth says. Uh, listen to what Paul says in, in uh, a couple chapters over in 1 Corinthians 4. In verse 1 he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful or trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. You know what Paul just said? He said, You can't judge me. In fact, I can't even judge myself. Think about that. Then who stands in judgment over me? For if I am conscious of anything against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. God is my judge. That's what's occurring in John's three letters to Ephesus. He's writing an open letter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's an open letter from an old saint... He's in his 90s, near the end, who wants clarity in his words. And he's nearer, here's the great point, he's nearer to his master than he's ever been before. His hope is about to be chronologically realized. And he anticipates that. And what I want to consider this morning, very quickly, because Randy did the groundwork on what's going to happen at the end, and that's where we're going to go. I want to consider this hope. Hope is not a negligible doctrine in Scripture. It is an elemental doctrine in Scripture. Yet it is sorely neglected by the church today. Um, how many of you remember a song called Mansion Over the Hilltop? I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver, a little gold. But in that mansion where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Okay? Why isn't that song in our hymnals anymore? What, Jeff came back from a singspiration up in Denver two weeks ago, three, four hours of songs about heaven. Why do our hymnals not contain songs about heaven anymore? Relatively few, right? Do we, is that maybe an indication that we don't think heaven's going to happen? Or, A.W. Tozier in the 1950s, preaching at Moody Church, said this, quote, The Holy Spirit could write Ichabod over most churches, depart, and they wouldn't even know the difference. Why? Because they figured out a system to achieve the end that they want in their church, and don't bug me with this Holy Spirit stuff. Beloved, I have a hope that is beyond this earth. This world is not my home, I'm... Just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And Lord, I'm not at home in this world anymore. <laughs> you know, James says that trials come along to dig the roots away from you planting your life in this world. Amen. By the way, if the rapture happens like Randy said while we're standing here this morning... You can have my blue suit that's at the, at the cleaners if you're still here. 
I'm going somewhere. I don't need a blue suit. I will be... You know what, you know what I'm going to be dressed in when I get to heaven? A bridal gown. I am going to look good. Finally. I'm the bride of Christ. Okay. You know, there's a church in Revelation 3 that thought it was rich. It thought it was wise. What's the name of that church? Laodicea. The word hope. Elpo. El, a compound word. El meaning God. Po meaning place. Hmm. How does that work? The word hope occurs 59 times in the New Testament. It occurs, 50, it occurs more times than the word heaven. It occurs more times than the word hell. It occurs more times than the word birth. It occurs more times than the word new. The word hope. How do those two, those two words compound? To, 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 do we get to the point where it means hope? The first word, L, is God's name. Okay? The second one, Po, means to be rooted. It means that I have a place in God. That's what the word hope means whenever it's used in its conjugates in Scripture. Fritz Reinecke said, and that's the quote that I have up here for you, he says, quote, as a perfect active participle, that means something happening in the present tense, that is being, the effect of it is occurring toward the object or the subject of the sentence, and the participle means that it's being done by that subject, Hope here speaks to the desire of the withdrawal from the profane so as to at the appearing before the presence of God in Christ we would put away every defilement which could cloud the vision of God, unquote. You think about that. Read that. Fritz Reinecke is a German scholar that has done a lot of, a lot of Greek work. He's a great source. I maintain that this hope of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, to put it at its elemental points, is is a desire that is born native in everyone that is truly redeemed. If you have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, you want nothing more in this life, in this world, than to be with Him. And so He becomes not just the object of hope, He becomes that hope. And it's, so it's not a wishful thinking, this hope that Scripture describes the believer in. And the resultant effect of that hope deep in my heart is preparedness to meet the one that I hope in. Um, did you guys know that history is, history is linear? It's not circular like Shirley MacLaine wants to say. History doesn't go round and round and repeat itself like on Groundhog Day in the movie. Okay. But history is linear. It starts at point A and it goes out to point B. I want to show you this then. Even though that's a clock. I just denied what I said, right? But that's the only illustration I could come up with. There's something that's going to happen. There's something that's coming about. And the reality of the Christian life is we live in anticipation of this occasion. Look over at Acts chapter 1. What's happening in Acts chapter 1 historically, by the way? The ascension. Jesus Christ is being taken back up, glorified into heaven. Verse 7, he's speaking, he said, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And so they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them and also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way or in like manner as you have watched him go up into heaven. Essential to the doctrine of hope is that Jesus Christ is coming again. When Peter stood up on his two hind legs after being filled by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and preached that gospel sermon, the theme of the first sermon preached by the church in all of church history following the exaltation of Christ was, you killed him, God raised him. What's the third condition? He's coming back. He's coming back. And the insinuation was, it won't be pleasant this time. He's coming back. The hope that I have in me could be realized at any instant. There is no precursor. As Randy said, there is nothing that needs to happen in prophetic history before the rapture of the church. Nothing. It is absolutely unpredictable. Well, what happens? I'm going to take you, instead of now, forward, I'm going to take you at the end of it and bring you all the way back rather quickly. You got your brains tied down? Okay, hold on. Here we go. Tighten up that pew belt because here we go. The first thing that's going to happen is, the last thing that's going to happen is the eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom, Randy talked about it at the end. New Jerusalem, that's not going to be all of it. Everything will be perfect in the eternal kingdom. There will be no imperfection. All of, all of, well, why talk about it? Let me show you. What's going to happen? What does it lead to? Before the eternal kingdom comes what? It's preceded by the total destruction of the universe. Nuclear structural disintegration. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12, that the, it will all melt with fervent heat. There is going to be nuclear disintegration of everything that we know that is material right now. So what can you value that God is going to value at the end and will not destroy? Nothing. Got it, Bill. Nothing. So what value should we put on it? We are to be stewards of what we've been given, Right? Not to abuse it or anything, but that doesn't... I, I, get a, I get a kick out of tree huggers. Every time I listen to one talk, they value the creation. God's going to do what to the creation? Nuke it! Uh, the, 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 metaphor, uh, the metaphor that Peter uses in Second Peter is like a shade that's pulled down and then let go when it's at the end of its spring. And it goes ding, 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 ding. And it's all gone. Nothing's going to be left there. <laughs> The new is going to be characterized by perfection. No more sin forever. Before that, this hope leads us to this. There will be a final judgment of the ungodly. I have to read that section out of Revelation 20. We're going to see that there will be a judgment of those that are ungodly because they can't enter into the eternal kingdom. There must be a judgment. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. They were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name, who, anyone's name that was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the, into the lake of fire. 
after this judgment occurs, everyone that enters into the new kingdom, into the new heavens and the new earth, will be a believer. All of that is done. It'll occur right here in this current universe. No sinners will survive. It'll be the final act that will occur in this material universe. Sinners are going to receive eternal bodies that will fit them for the agony and the anguish and the torture and the eternal punishment of hell. Think about that. Bodies cannot be consumed. The worm eats at them forever. The fire licks at their flesh and they know the anguish of both, but they are not consumed. What happens before that? A thousand year reign on earth by the Lord Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom. That's covered in Revelation 20. Go back and read Revelation 20, you'll see it. Randy covered it. Jesus reigns with a rod of iron from the city of Jerusalem. Actually, physically, on earth, ruling. The millennial kingdom begins with only believers. But, during the millennial kingdom, that thousand year kingdom, they have children. I've asked myself, why does God go through this process? And I think I've arrived at a proper conclusion. These children, born of believing human beings, are not covenantal theologians. You see, a covenantal theologian believes that your child is saved because you're saved. Is that true? Every individual that's ever been saved is saved individually. Not by something the parents do. Some of you have unbelieving children. If you're a believer, why aren't they believers? Hmm? During the millennial kingdom, only believers go into the thousand-year reign. They will have children. Everybody will live so long, it says in Jeremiah, that if a person dies at a hundred, they die as a child. But these people will have children, and those children will rebel. And they will prove that believers believe because of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not because of who, they, who they're born to. What happens before that? I'm backing you up. Okay? Christ comes in judgment. Revelation 19. He has just come from the battle of Armageddon. His white robes and your white robes. I've never ridden a horse in my life. I'll be able to ride one in Revelation 19. And I'll ride one with, with, with a sword and a lance in either hand. And the slaughter will occur in the valley of Megiddo. And there'll be blood up to the, that will flow up to the uh, reins of the horse's mouth. And there will be such destruction that it's unbelievable. Judgment, 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 and destruction of the unjust hordes. Judgment, millennial kingdom, judgment, new, earth, new heavens and new earth. What happens before that? The time of tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. Devastation, divine judgment and wrath. It terminates with the Lord's return in Revelation 19 on the day of the Lord. It is described in Revelation 6 through 19, this, this seven-year tribulation. All of us are probably familiar with it. It is a series of seven broken seals of judgment on the title deed to the earth, the only one judged righteous enough to open this, seat, open this, this uh, document that is the deed to the earth is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he opens each seal, 
it discloses another portion of that scroll, which is judgment. The first one is the arrival of four horsemen on four horses. One of them is the Antichrist. Out of the seventh seal comes seven trumpets. Out of the seventh trumpet comes seven bowls. The seals are gradual over that period of seven years. The seventh seal is open. Seven trumpets blow in quicker succession. Where we've dealt in years, when we come to the trumpets, we're probably dealing in months. When you come to the end with the seven bowls of judgment, you're probably dealing in days or hours. And it becomes more staccato as you get towards the end, and everything is destroyed. And finally, the Lord comes and rules as he should. What happens before that? Before the Great Tribulation? Well, that's the trigger device for everything that we've talked about. You say, what does this have to do with hope. Well, the rapture, ektanes in, in Greek means to snatch away. Rapture is a Latin word that we get out of the, out of the, out of the Latin Vulgate Bible. The actual word in Greek is ektanes. It means to snatch up. Ek, out of, tanes, to remove. When that happens, tribulation judgment begins. Everything that's happened after this is knowable. Everything that happens once the rapture happens is signable. You will know it's happening. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, you will know it. The only thing we don't know is the timing of the rapture. It could happen as we sit here. If the rapture happens while we're still here and you are still here, you'll know it happened. You'll say, where'd they go? You say, that's what Howard was just talking about. Now, Satan is going to send a lie so that the vast majority of the world won't, won't give this credit to God, but there will be a group of people that know. By the way, if the rapture happens now and you're not pre-tribulation rapture, God is gracious. He will take you and you'll know just how right I am. Okay? <laughs> you'll know as soon as the first seal opens. There are no precursors to the rapture. None whatsoever. So, we live in hope. We live in fulfilled expectation of what is going to come. Until then, we have these hopes. And I put them in red and I shouldn't have. John 14, 1 through 3, we'll, we'll read these and then we'll quit, okay? Jesus is in the upper room before he is about to be crucified. He has told his disciples in chapter 13, he has sent Judas out. They've had communion, and he's told them that he's about to die. They haven't believed him up till now. He's told them several times, but they haven't believed him. And now they're troubled. We put all of our eggs in this one basket. What are we going to do? Jesus says this, Let not your heart be, what? Troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare this place for you. And if I go and prepare the place for you, what? I will come again. Is that hope? That is the greatest of hope. I don't know about you, but my life, this life here on earth has not been fun, has it? I grew up in a black church on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. My wife said that explains a lot of the reasons for the way that I am, okay? But we used to sing songs that you would thought were being sung at a funeral. Crossing over Jordan, here we go. You know? 
And at the end, everybody say amen. And I wonder, what is he saying amen for? You know, we shall. Do you know that we shall overcome is a hymn? Why? Because this life is not where I truly want to be. People look at me weird like I like. You know that Paul was the same weird that I am. He said to the Philippians, I'd rather go and be with the Lord, but I'm here. Doesn't make me suicidal, it makes me full of hope. That takes away anxiety. Now look at 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he writes. This is marvelous. This marvelous chapter about the resurrection. He says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. I'm going to tell you a mysterion, something that hasn't been revealed real before. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is the metaphor in Scripture for what happens to a believer at the termination of this life. Believers don't die. Believers go to sleep. You know what the Latin word for a cemetery is? Dormatas. Dormitory. What do you do in a dormitory? Well, today they party. They don't study. But in a dormitory you sleep. That's what happens to the body of a believer. We won't all die, but we shall all be changed. Ha! I like that. No more glasses. Boonk. Gone. No more Pharisee teeth. Boonk. Gone. No more whatever it is, whatever the infringement upon our perfection is, it's all gone. We shall be changed. How? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. You know what twinkling eye is? That is the time it takes a piece of light to move from the outside of your eye to the cornea. How fast is that? Just like that, okay? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I ask myself, why does it have to be that fast? You know why? What has Satan been trying to do the entire time he's been fighting God? He's been trying to prevent that from happening to you. If he can stop the rapture of the church, if the rapture were predictable by a sign, no man knows the day or the hour in which the Son of Man appeareth, does he? Not even the Son of Man. He doesn't even know. It has to be that quick, boom, because if Satan could stop it from happening, one of God's promises could not be kept. I mean, why couldn't it just been? Why can't it just be kind of like, "Oh, all you lost people, here we go," you know, and rise up rather majestically on a cloud? No, it has to be just like that. So Satan can't prevent it. Then he goes on. He says, "At the last trumpet, what's my favorite instrument in all the world? Piano takes an awful lot of." Agility, and I admire people that can do it, but I love the sound of a trumpet. I was preaching one day, and we had a German kid in our church, Joe Benhart. Joe was 36 on the outside and 12 on the inside. And Joe was going to play a trumpet solo at the end of the service, and I didn't know it. And I was preaching, and I was looking over here, and you get really focused and really intense. And Joe wanted to get his lip warm. And Joe went, Toot! and I went, yes! <sighs> Oh, was I disappointed. <laughs> oh, well. There'll be a complete change, for this perishable, verse 53, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. I really hope this happens today. I don't have any plans that I want to preclude the rapture. 
I don't have... I've listened to some young people say, well, I want to get married first. I said, how about marrying Jesus? I want that to happen so much. Look over at 1 Thessalonians. The first letter chronologically that Paul writes is to the church at Thessalonica. And it is to correct an error that is occurring in Thessalonica by false teachers that are teaching that Jesus has already come back and the rapture of the church has happened. Paul has to write First and Second Thessalonians to correct that error. Verse 16 of chapter 4, listen to what he says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 15 says what? Therefore, comfort one another with this. The Lord hasn't come back, but He is coming back. Let me leave you with just this thought. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Christ. And that's hope, isn't it, beloved? I have hope. I'm a believer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ is not resurrected, we above all people are what? Hopeless. Do you have that hope? Do you yearn for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to begin this sequence of events that will be fulfilled and they will come to pass as he has written in this book that we so love? Let's pray. Lord, I cannot but repeat Brother John's words at the end of the book of Revelation. Even so, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come quickly. Let us not leave this place, but that your return has occurred when we will be joined with our family and friends that are believers in you. And great joy will fill our heart because you will rightly be in your place on your throne and the world will finally see the one that they have rejected. As you will, Father, we take satisfaction in that. Amen.